The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. The following talks are offered by the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies. Please visit our website, www.sati.org, for more information on our courses. So in, in this segment, I'd like to talk for maybe um, 20, 25 minutes on the theme of the roots of socially engaged Buddhism in tradition and the question of whether socially engaged Buddhism is simply continuous with tradition where there's innovation and so forth. And again, this segment will draw a little bit more from some of the uh, scholarly work, whereas the afternoon will be more on the practical side. But all of this has a lot of practical implications as well. Um, So first of all, we could ask, uh, really following um, Ken's question, what, what are the roots in traditional Buddhism that seem in some ways to be socially engaged? Uh, even though the way that the Buddha taught was clearly oriented towards uh, those who were monks or nuns, was clearly oriented towards uh, monastics. And in that sense, um, it was, there was not that sense of uh, working for social change that's common in the West. And indeed, some of the, some of the historians and analysts that I've read suggest that actually, and some of you may have different views or maybe uh, counterexamples, but some of, the, some of those who I've read suggest that when we look to both the history of both West and East and even indigenous societies, that the understanding that the social structure is up for grabs is a very, very recent uh, innovation that there's always historically, and then the people that I've read say that it's actually only with the coming of the French Revolution that one has the sense that uh, the social structure is not divinely ordained, or it's not that the rights of kings and emperors are 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 not simply part of the structure of things, or I think there's a line in the uh, Christian. Bible that says the powers that be are ordained of God. Don't know if you knew that line, uh, but but on that analysis, the idea that that the rights of kings and the rights of emperors at the very social structure should be looked at with the view towards is this a good structure or a bad structure, and if it's bad, we should change it. Or if you know you know these are. I was was looking at the uh, Declaration of Independence recently, the U.S. Declaration of Independence from July 4th, 1776. And you can find that kind of view in in the American revolutions and the um, French revolutions. It says something like, um, if the government essentially is not meeting the needs of the people, we should get rid of it. Well, 
on, on the analysis of the historians I've read, that that is recent. And you don't find that historically in Asian or Western societies up until modernity, up until the modern world. And what that means is that it just wasn't part of the landscape to think of um, changing the social structures. Now, one could uh, develop a counterculture or a counter society, and we could interpret what the Buddha was doing as that, very much like your points. That your, your name again is? Shanka. Shanka. That uh, Shanka's points were that the Buddha was tremendously innovative in a way that had social implications in terms of uh, uh, in terms of saying within we could say the counterculture that is the Buddha Sangha we will not have the caste system we will have relative gender equality although it's not equal as we know but it was more equal than it was elsewhere right and we will we will make these innovations within the culture but it's more in the sense of this is the counterculture. This is our special sangha. And it, there's not a sense of, oh, yes, and we should bring it into the world and change the world. There wasn't that sense. And historically, as I understand it, we don't have that understanding until very recently in history. Again, I'm open to being uh, corrected on that, but that's my, that's my understanding. And so the, the emphasis in the teachings of the Buddha is on those within that counterculture, within that community, which is uh, relatively equitable socially, uh, social hierarchies dismissed for the most part, within that framework, then the focus is on individual transformation. You know, Although there's a whole structure that is the structure of the Sangha, which makes possible individual transformation. But my understanding is that the, the, um, the emphasis there is on those teachings. Now, let me say a word or two more and then, and then get to your point. Now, when we look to the traditional teachings, we can see that the Buddha seems, and again, there's some people who have taken opposite views, but does not seem to have been socially involved in a continual way. There are examples of the Buddha intervening to stop wars. You know, so he was socially involved in that sense. There are examples of him trying to stop wars. There was one famous example where he intervened several times and the war occurred anyway. And he made comments about the conditions are very strong towards war. So there are examples of that. There are comments throughout the text. They're not, you know, they're not... Um, a large number of them, but there are comments about the roots of social ills in greed, hatred, delusion. So there's some analysis of the roots of social ills. Probably the part of the traditional Buddhist teachings that I find to have the most continuity with socially engaged Buddhism are in um, two primary areas. One of them is the whole area of what that we call sila or ethics. And the second area is the core is in the core teachings and practices related, for example, to the Four Noble Truths. And I want to say a little bit about both of those and then and then um, talk about some of the 
ways that we understand socially engaged Buddhism in relation to traditional practice. A number of socially engaged Buddhists actually take the strong basis for socially engaged Buddhism to be in traditional ethics. And you may remember that the, you know, that the, the monks and nuns have several hundred uh, guidelines in the what's called the Vinaya, and that lay people have five guidelines, but some of the core teachings are expressed through the precepts, which those of us who've done retreats, we take at the beginning of every retreat. And so you know that there, we take the ethical guidelines uh, not to harm others, not to kill, not to take that which is not given, to have care in the areas of sexuality, speech, and the use of substances with shift consciousness. Those are the five lay precepts. Now, what I have found when in doing research, what's interesting is that there is evidence for those ethical guidelines being interpreted in a social way. You know, sometimes it's said that um, the ethics of Buddhism are more individual, and that you know we find. In the Western traditions, the ethics sometimes are more social, more applied to the social dimension, in part because of the concept of justice. We don't, we don't find a concept like justice that really translates anything like the concept of justice in Buddhist tradition. That's, <clears throat> that's an interesting fact. Um, but we do have the ethical guidelines, and some of you may know from having read Thich Nhat Hanh that he gives an explicitly social reading to uh, the ethical precepts. For example, if you know um, one, of the, one of the sets of engaged Buddhist guidelines are the 14 guidelines of the Thiep Hien Order, which he developed in Vietnam in 1964-65. And some of you who know the book Being Peace, that has a listing of those of those uh, precepts, which are are quite inspiring, you know that um, it ha- has. Um, let's see if I can where I find this. And there's they're also outlined, I think, in a, in a book called Interbeing. So the first first guideline is, do not be idolatrous about or bound to any doctrine, theory, or ideology, even Buddhist ones. All systems of thought are guiding means. They are not absolute truth. And those of you who know this know that there are um, 14 guidelines, which were the, which was the first expression of uh, engaged Buddhist principles as a guideline for practice. That was in Vietnam and very inspiring. And they inspired when, um, when Diana Winston and I were doing our initial teaching on socially engaged Buddhism, we started developing our own sets of principles. And eventually we came up with um, a list of 10 um, that actually formed the structure of this book, The Engaged Spiritual Life. And they're, they're, they're on one of the handouts, uh, which the handout called Principles for a Socially Engaged Buddhism. Um, but Thich Nhat Hanh had his own list of 14 of these. And... Let me see if I can find the one that's about... Um, they're, they're quite socially involved. So um, 
this is a trans this is really a translation of the precepts uh, not taking that which is not given um, do not accumulate wealth while millions are hungry do not take as the aim of your life fame profit wealth or sensual pleasure live simply and share time energy and material resources with those who are in need that's his unpacking of the guideline of not taking that which is not given. But here's quite quite radically is his translation of the precept on not harming or not killing. He says, do not kill. And that's the usual way we interpret it, is meaning that guideline is, is about face-to-face behavior, right? Don't harm others in your face-to-face behavior. But he says, do not kill, do not let others kill, Find whatever means possible to protect life and prevent war. And what's interesting is that I found that when we look to some of the uh, teachings of the Buddha, they seem to have a social dimension that's somewhat similar and parallel to Thich Nhat Hanh saying, do not let others kill. If that's your ethical precept, do not let others kill, that's very social, right? That could be the basis for social action. You know, and a number of engaged Buddhists interpret their social action as an outgrowth of living ethically, as do many Christians, many Jews, many Muslims, and so forth. That um, that it's really a direct expression of taking ethical commitment seriously. You know, and we, you know, and many people say, okay, especially again, this is where the distinction between a country of citizens as opposed to a country of subjects of the king, comes in. Citizens have responsibility for their government. When the government kills in one's name, many people would interpret these ethical principles as implying that one should act against that. So here's, now here are some passages. You heard Thich Nhat Hanh version. And this is an unpacking of it. He says, Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I vow to cultivate compassion and learn ways to protect the lives of people, animals, plants, and animals. I am determined not to kill, nor to let others kill, and not to condone any act of killing in the world in my thinking and in my way of life. That's pretty radical, if you would actually take that, if we would take that. He goes on to say uh, more about the injunction to stop others from killing. He says... We cannot support any act of killing. No killing can be justified. But not to kill is not enough. We must also learn ways to prevent others from killing. We cannot say, I am not responsible. They did it. My hands are clean. If you were in Germany during the time of the Nazis, you could not say, they did it. I did not. If during the first Gulf War, you did not say or do anything to try to stop the killing, you were not practicing the precept. What's interesting that I found is that we have passages from the Buddha. They're not quite as explicit, but here, here are some passages from the Buddha, from the, the Sutta Nipada, where the Buddha is summarizing the precept about not harming or not killing. Let one not destroy life, nor cause others to destroy life, and also not approve of others' killing. So there three ways that we can follow the precept. We cannot kill ourselves, 
we cannot cause others to kill, and we don't cannot uh, we cannot approve of others killing. Well, that's all there is. But one could unpack that in various ways, right? One could unpack that as me as implying a social dimension to the ethics, right? That it was clearly a social dimension, but one could interpret that as being not so far away from what Thich Nhat Hanh is saying. And we can find other versions of the other precepts that do similar things. It's not just about one's face-to-face action, but it's also about what one causes to happen or what one approves of. So that's one basis for saying that there's continuity with tradition for socially engaged Buddhists. Another area is to take a fundamental teaching like the Four Noble Truths, which is probably the central teaching of Buddhism. You know, it's the teaching which probably unifies all of the different Buddhist traditions. Everyone more or less familiar with this? Anyone could use a little bit of clarification on that? Okay, I see most of you will be familiar with this. But it's basically a teaching that says, and this is interesting, a a socially engaged Buddhist named Santi Caro, who was a a monk under Buddha Dasa, who now lives in Wisconsin and is a layperson and um, has done a lot of very helpful writing on socially engaged Buddhism. But he was, he was a monk under Buddha Dasa for about uh, 20 years and is his, his main translator into English and has written a number of essays. Buddha Dasa is probably a very interesting Thai monk, one of the great monks of the 20th century, who himself did writing on um, engaged Buddhism. You know, it fits in that category. He wrote about, you know, this is somewhat controversial, but in the, in the time of conflict in Thai society, he wrote about what he called Dhammic socialism. You know, in a, not, not hugely controversial in Thailand, in the US it would be very controversial. <laughs> so that's another matter. Um, but a little controversial, maybe somewhat controversial in Thailand. So um, Santi Caro said that the core teaching of the four truths is that the way it is in the text, it says there is suffering. There is a cause of suffering. There is the end to suffering. And there is a way to the end of suffering. Those are the four truths. And what I found very interesting, it actually gets into some unpacking the four truths is um, sometimes challenging. And for me, uh, very uh, one teaching which unpacks the first two truths in a very concise way is a teaching that I love, which those of you who've been around me have heard this from time to time. It's the teaching of the two arrows, which I know uh, Gil, Gil Fransdell, who teaches here, loves that. I think I actually, for the first time, I heard it from him, from Gil, actually. But it's a beautiful teaching. In the text, it's sometimes called the two darts. Uh, and it, it, it goes like this. And it's really an unpacking of a distinction between pain and suffering, which starts to get into some interesting issues related to socially engaged Buddhism, which I'll get to in a moment. But it's essentially a teaching that everyone experiences a certain amount of pain, the presence of the unpleasant. And the Buddha calls this, in the context of this teaching, the first arrow. We are all at times shot by a first arrow. It's the arrow of pain. We have at times physical pain, We get injured at times, we get sick. 
eventually we die. There can be pain connected with that process. And that's part of being a human being. We all have pain. The Buddha asked, everyone has pain. Everyone is shot by the first arrow. How does someone practicing differ from someone who's not practicing? And this was his answer. The person shot by the first arrow, and we can also think of the first arrow as emotional pain or the pain of being treated unjustly or unfairly. The person who is shot by the first arrow tends to shoot a second arrow either at self or other or both because of the first arrow. So what does that look like? It means that when I feel physical pain, on the physical level, I often tense around the pain. Very common. You know, I tense around the pain, I contract. It may lead me to mentally contract, to blame myself or blame others. There's a kind of contraction. One of the reasons that meditation is so valuable in medical settings is that people can learn not to contract physically with unpleasant sensations. Some doctors say that 80 or 90% of what people experience as pain is not the original stimulation or the original sensation, but it's the reaction, the contraction, the tensing, which can be temporary or it can be chronic. Often chronic results in illness and so forth. People can learn not to do that, but what's interesting is that that's the second arrow. Often because people don't have the capacity to be with the unpleasant they shoot a second arrow at themselves or others as if that would help, right? It's clearer how we do that emotionally. Something difficult happens to me. I have a difficult encounter with a partner, with a friend, with a family member, and I feel angry or I feel sad, and I go into a bad mood for three days. Or... I blame myself for what's happened, or I blame the other person, or I hold a grudge for two years. That's the second arrow. Right? That's what the Buddha is talking about. Again, it often comes from the inability to be present in an open way with what's difficult. So one of the glories of meditation practice is learning how to do that, learning how to be present without being reactive. And we could, we could apply this also to issues of injustice and issues of um, oppression, that those could be interpreted as part of the first arrow. And people, when they respond to the first arrow, sometimes think they're trying to get rid of oppression by just being reactive, lashing out. I interpret nonviolence as a teaching that says that when you use violence, against oppression or against previous violence, that's like shooting the second arrow and it goes in cycles and makes things worse. I interpret Gandhi and King as teaching exactly the same thing. They're basically saying, we have received something very unpleasant. We have a choice of either reacting and continuing the cycles or we can stop the cycles right here which is, I think, what we do in our practice. We, in our meditation practice, we say, I will learn not to shoot the second arrow. So this is a core teaching that can be the basis for social action. It's an understanding of suffering. One interesting um, 
observations of Santikaro in some of his writing is that the Buddha didn't say, there is my suffering. And he didn't say, it's, there is your suffering. He said, there's suffering. And the work is to transform suffering. Suffering is the second arrow, by the way. Suffering is that reactivity. I'll come back in a moment to the relation between pain and suffering because I think it's quite important. Now, um, what Santikaro said is that often in our meditation practice, we interpret the first truth as if it's not about there is suffering and we should transform suffering, which could be heard as something social. And I think that was the basis for a lot of the Mahayana that there is suffering, we should transform suffering wherever it exists, right? That's the basis for a social reading of Buddhism. And how one does that's another question, but that could be read as the the, um, invocation to help others, basically. And so Santikara said that the Buddha said, there is suffering. He didn't say there is my suffering. If he said there is my suffering, then the practice would be just to transform me and my suffering. He didn't say that. And so when we, when we interpret the first noble truth as meaning there is my suffering, we get, we might say, a self-centered interpretation of the first truth. And when we say there is suffering means there is your suffering or there is others' suffering, then we get an interpretation where we become do-gooders and we don't see our own suffering. It's a very common for people doing social service or social change work. We help others, but we don't see our own suffering or even how our own suffering is implicated. So one could use these very traditional bases as the basis for saying that there's continuity with tradition. And one could also see that there, to some extent, there may be some discontinuity with tradition. And among the scholars, they've debated this. You know, some see that, for example, the emphasis particularly on looking at how institutions and ideologies are embodiments of greed, hatred, and delusion that should be transformed, that that's an innovation. That's an innovation of socially engaged Buddhism to actually look institutionally there's a powerful short writing which is available on the internet, which is not on my reading list. And I thought I had it with me, but I don't. So I'll have to paraphrase it. Some of you know Bhikkhu Bodhi. Did anyone go to Bhikkhu Bodhi's uh, Sati seminar uh, meeting in last October? Right. So he's doing very interesting work and is very much influenced, probably very strong influence for the work you do with World Aid, right? Insight World Aid. Bhikkhu Bodhi... How many people know of Bhikkhu Bodhi? So he is a, a Westerner, a Buddhist monk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry to uh, yeah. sort of delay you here, but um, I guess I'm trying to nail down the, the second basis, the second basis for uh, socially engaged Buddhism yeah. in, 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 the, in the literature, in, in the roots of, of Buddhism. In terms and, of the four truths? Yeah. 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 And, and I guess I have a quibble and also I'm, some, I'm somewhat confused. And, and this is 
Let me see what I can uh, try to clarify what I'm saying. Um, um, Ken, would you, would you yeah. be willing to just let me talk for maybe five minutes and then come back to you? Because it sounds like that you're kind of opening up to something interesting. But um, uh, it, it sounds like maybe not just a simple question of clarification. Okay. Um, so we'll, we'll come back. But yeah, let me get things out. Then we can, can talk some. So... Um, Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote this very interesting piece. I think it was called A Challenge for Western Buddhists, and it's available on the internet. Is that the correct title? Sure. Yeah, I think it's called A Challenge. If you just Google Bhikkhu Bodhi, B-H-I-K-K-H-U-B-O-D-H-I, and Challenge, the way the internet works, you'll get it right away. You'll probably get 13 versions of it. So um, he, it was a very provocative, just four-page essay. It was, I think, originally published in, I don't know, either Shambhala-san or Buddha Dharma, one of those two, I forget which one. And in it he said that the horizon for Western Buddhists is their own personal suffering. That when we interpret the first truth, it seems to be about what he called the ennui, the the unease of discontent or relationships which could use some work or job dissatisfaction. And he said this is, in some ways, that's the horizon when, when Western Buddhists talk about suffering. And he says, and yet there's the massive suffering around the world. And how do we respond to that? And he went further and said that nowadays we have to unpack the meaning of suffering by looking at how institutions um, affect suffering. We'll have to look, in other words, he said, at the collective causes of suffering. There's a very interesting author, some of you may know, David Loy, L-O-Y, and his books are on the reading list. David and I are going to teach a seven-day retreat on engaged Buddhism at Spirit Rock next year in May. Um, and David's written very, he's written the best books on engaged Buddhist theory, if you're, if you're interested. One of them is called The Great Awakening, a Buddhist uh, social theory. And another book, uh, uh, I think the, the publishers must have chosen this title, Money, Sex, War, and Karma. <laughs> so I, th- I doubt if that was David's title. You know, being having published a few books, I know how authors or publishers have most of the control over titles because... They've done their research. <laughs> okay, so anyway, so um, David uh, has a very wonderful essay in, the, in this book called The Three Poisons Institutionalized, which means that in, in Buddhism, the three poisons or the three roots of suffering are greed, hatred, and delusion. And he says that nowadays we have to look at how this is institutionalized, that it's not just about personal behavior, personal ideas, personal actions, but that the suffering of our world is collectively structured through economic, military, political um, institutions and ideologies, and that those have to be addressed. I'll just read one paragraph, and, and this would be something that's innovative about, about engaged Buddhism. or Not all engaged Buddhists go to the focus on institutions, but a lot of, the, a lot of them do. For, for a lot of engaged Buddhists, it's simply 
trying to bring compassion into action and they don't look at the institutional issues. So I, I want to again recognize a wide spectrum. But this is, this is uh, David from David's uh, essay in this book. Do the three poisons also operate collectively? If there are collective selves, does this mean that there is also collective greed, collective ill will, collective delusion? To ask the question this way is to realize the answer. Our present economic system institutionalizes greed. Our militarism institutionalizes ill will. And our corporate media institutionalized delusion. (laughs) To repeat, the problem is not only that the three poisons operate collectively, but that they have taken on a life of their own. Today, it is crucial for us to wake up and face the implication of these three institutional poisons. So that might be a way that there is innovation. And I'll just maybe I'll just end with one other thought. There's a lot more I could say here, and actually I have a lot in my notes that I'm not going to not going to talk about. But the some would take that to be what's really uh, characteristic of engaged Buddhism. And again, it may be that we eventually we drop these labels. But in any case, the interest in connecting our individual lives with our collective lives to me is one of the significant horizons of socially engaged Buddhism. And another way we could look at it is that there is a kind of a meeting of some of what we've inherited from Western social justice traditions with what we might call the depth psychology of Buddhism, producing something larger in ways that might be parallel. You know, you think of what happened in in, um, China, for example, where Buddhism goes to China, a lot of different forms exist. Some of them are, you know, um, very academic and very theoretical. And then those who maybe are very strongly influenced by the Taoist elements of the Taoist tradition and say, we have to get away from the overly intellectualized Buddhism and they start Zen to give a simple version of the story. And there must have been people there saying, wait a second, this isn't Indian Buddhism. We're departing from it, <laughs> you know, but they're bringing in a way we can see what happens in different cultures as some of the riches of an individual culture have many times in history been married with Buddhism. Of course, it happens in other traditions as well. It's one horizon to understand socially engaged Buddhism. It's one of the ways I understand it. And so the social justice traditions would have that emphasis on institutions, on ideologies, on larger structures. So then and this starts to get into uh, what we're doing in the afternoon, then the question is, what does that look like as practice? How do we do that? How do we understand it? How do we, for example, look at the world with spiritually influenced eyes, we might say? So a lot of issues come up. So maybe I'll just stop there and we'll have a little bit of discussion now further. And again, there, there's a lot... There's a lot in the scholarly literature that's very interesting about tradition and modernity and so forth. But one, we can go to your question, Ken. Yeah, I'm trying to understand um, your point about how um, about the, the, the second route yeah. uh, in, in doctrine, if you like, yeah. uh, for, for socially engaged Buddhism. And, uh, and you mentioned the two dots. Yeah. And that's where I want to, to go to. Um, yeah. uh, I think to be, um, you see, from a technical point of view, 
Buddhist notion of suffering really pertains to the second dot. That's right. Okay? Because the, only the second dot can be terminated. Because second dot is the suffering from the second dot is self-inflicted because of clinging and so on to right. impermanence and, and so on and so forth and so on. And so it, only the second dot can be terminated. But the first dot is also considered dukkha. It's yeah. called dukkha dukkha. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is a quibble. Yeah. But but because the first dot is biological. Yeah. You can get rid of it. This is part of the human condition. So yeah. really, uh, one needs to sort of re re rehash or rephrase, you know, the the the, the four noble truths in in this light. So yeah. That's that's, that's the, the first point. The first one. That's okay. The question then the question then becomes how does the second dot? Yeah. How does working with the second doubt, okay, and, and yeah. Buddhist contribution towards working with the second doubt, yeah. connect to the the um, to this point you're trying to make, which that it is in some ways could be interpreted as a basis yeah. of social engagement Buddhism. Yeah. That's, that's. So great questions, thank you. Um, so first question really is about the and and I was actually going to go into this because I think it's actually quite a critical issue quite an important issue, which is it really is about the understanding of what dukkha is or what, um, you know, and suffering is a, at best an imperfect translation into English. And, and how we understand that in the traditional text, how we understand the relationship between what I'm calling pain and suffering. Now, I think you're right that in the text, there's not some uniform, clear distinction as I made it between pain and suffering. That's, I think the teaching of the two arrows is very, very clear and really points towards that distinction in a very fundamental way. So when the Buddha talks about uh, overcoming suffering, he's not talking about overcoming pain, right? That's very clear. And so for me, that's the only way to interpret the deeper message is to make a distinction like that. And so, you know, when, you know, the Buddha clearly, you know, in his older age, he had headaches, he had a bad back. Sometimes he would say to Ananda, hey, can you give the Dharma talk tonight? My back's killing me. That's in the text. I mean, not, not with the, you know, American accent, but, you know, you, and that's, um, and so that's very important. I think, for me, when I go to retreats and so forth, I find a lot of confusion often in the way that the first and second truths are taught because if one doesn't make a distinction pretty clear between pain and suffering, it's hard to know what it means to overcome suffering because uh, one's not going to overcome pain or get rid of pain. That's clear. Um, but in the text, when the Buddha is talking about dukkha, he often says you know, not getting what you um, want is dukkha. Old age is dukkha, and so forth. And so he seems at times to suggest that what is actually more part of the first arrow seems to be dukkha. So there's, I think there is that, I would call it an ambiguity in the text, probably based on the, you know, just on the different audience he was talking to. And yet... Um, I think it's a very important question, and I, I actually haven't written on this, nor taught so much about it, nor seen other people taught, but right at the crux of your question, 
is we can ask, what's the relationship between pain and suffering? Now, some people criticize socially engaged Buddhism and say, wait a second, what Buddhism is really about is not shooting the second arrow. It's really not, you know, and someone could have oppression, and if they were strong in their Buddhist practice, they would be just fine, right? And you can read reports of Tibetan monks who are tortured and spend 20 years in prison, and they come out intact, and they have a deep practice, and it doesn't influence them, apparently, you know, or at least some. You know, we, we, and there, some of those are teaching in, in the West now, and you can you know, discern for yourself. And so one could interpret Buddhism and say, it has nothing to do with the social conditions. You know, whatever, it's that the practice has nothing to do with conditions. Don't look for the conditions outside to be of any way. Just take whatever conditions you have and do your internal work. One can interpret Buddhism like that, and it's often interpreted like that. And along those lines, it's very much like what you were suggesting, that would be just, as it were, Buddhism is second arrow work, right, so to speak. Buddhist practice is about not shooting the second arrow, and it's all internal. You know, it's all inner work, and the social conditions don't matter. And so, how do we work with that? You know, and some people say, socially engaged Buddhism is about changing the conditions related to the first arrow. And it's not really Buddhism anymore. You know, it's a kind of an imposition of um, Western, Western values on Buddhism. There are people who write like that from a scholarly point of view. But what I've been reflecting on that seems quite important, and I think we can know it in our, in our own experience, even though there may be people at very high levels of development, like in those Tibetan among those Tibetan monks or nuns. Generally speaking, why do we want to ease pain? You know, we have kind of a natural compassionate response when someone has pain to ease it, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain or injustice. Why do we want to do that? Um, I think in large part or a big part of the answer is that the presence of pain very quickly leads to suffering. Sometimes almost automatically. You know, in other words, there's a very close connection between pain and suffering. Pain, the presence of pain inclines us to shoot the second arrow. And often, it's not like we consciously think, should I shoot the second arrow or not? You know? if we haven't had training, when I have physical pain, I just contract automatically. When I have emotional pain, I just go right into judging myself for the next three weeks without any forethought, right? That there's a very strong connection between the presence of pain and the presence of suffering. And that's, I think, a big part of why we want to respond. So it's really a question of what's the connection between the first arrow and the second arrow and why do we want to respond to the first arrow? If we had some community of people who are at very high levels of realization who had a lot of illnesses but were just sitting around beaming loving kindness, would we necessarily want to help them? Well, maybe, because maybe it could be greater or something. But we, we want to help others 
who have pain because the, the movement of suffering is often almost immediate. And that's an interesting issue in relating to, uh, relating to traditional Buddhism. It's kind of, it's kind of, this is something I've been, I've been thinking about. Does that make some sense? That there, there's that kind of connection. So we actually want to, we want to, um, ease pain because the conditions of pain or the conditions of oppression or the conditions of deprivation almost always lead immediately to violence and suffering. And so that's why I think in many circles that distinction isn't even made. They don't make the fine distinction between pain and suffering because they're almost, they go together, right? I think that's in our Western languages, I think that's what we tend to do. But it's a subtlety, right? This is an important, an important subtlety involved here. And so um, we would be responding, we respond to, it would be part of a response, part of the response to suffering would be to ease or eliminate conditions which lead to pain because of that connection. And so that would lead one to do all sorts of compassionate action. But, but one has to make those points because your initial question is completely right. There is, you know, from a technical point of view, one could say that suffering is second arrow business, right? So interesting, interesting question. And so we could then, um, we could then understand that relationship, use a teaching like the two arrows, and then give that, you know, we could see that easy connection between pain and suffering and understand this as being virtually un- universal and use a teaching like that as a way to understand what happens. And so we could work, this is where the inner work and the outer work would tend to be connected. So we could give people practices so that they could do the inner work that helps them, let's say one gets sick or has pain or emotional pain, not to shoot, not to shoot the second arrow oneself. We could give people those practices, but then we'd also want to help change the institutions that chronically churn out pain. You know, I mean, on all sorts of levels. You know, whether it's, you know, the American healthcare system or the fact that certain people in certain groups have much less access to healthcare, which turns out illness and you know, what is it, like African-American women have huge higher percentage of breast cancer than European-American women, right? For, and largely because it's, uh, or the deaths from breast cancer are much higher, largely because of coverage and access, right? That could be interpreted as a part of how one acts to prevent suffering. So do you see, just broadly speaking, one could do, one could, as an engaged Buddhist, teach people, give people inner practices, but then would all, one would also want to respond to the outer structures and ideologies which tend to churn out certain kinds of pain in a systematic way. And so that could be, and one could use that teaching as a very simple way to make those points clear. I think it's quite effective. It's, it's a very, for me, one can say that teaching in five minutes and it gets right to the heart of the four truths. I think, for me, more effectively than talking about the four truths, actually, because it's very, it's the, kind of the metaphor is really, I mean, and the examples from our own experience are right at hand. We all know how some, someone says something to us and we react for the next week, right? 
and have stuff going on in her mind, her words, and so forth. That's very, very uh, direct experience. Yeah. That was a long answer to a very, I think, a very um, good set of questions. And I'm glad I, I brought that out about the relationship of the first and second arrow, because that's quite, quite a significant and somewhat subtle point. Yeah. Other, a few other, uh, Lori, please. Donald, um, in response to this discussion about the second arrow, yeah. I'm reminded of a sutta in which there's a monk who gets dysentery. Mm-hmm. And the community of monks ignores this person. And the Buddha actually has Ananda help him to clean this monk up and then he actually gathers the monks together to tell them that they need to take care of one another. So that's actually um, pointing to maybe, you know, here's this community practicing to um, be liberated and yet they miss that particular Mm -hmm. connection. Yeah, that's a a great example from... um from that passage, and again, one could take something like that. I think those who rely on the traditional text, it's just a general invocation, you know, general invocation, take care of others. And how exactly to do that is not, not spelled out. I don't think we have in traditional, uh, in the teachings of the Buddha, it's not like you have a path. Okay, here are three roots for our monks. You know, one of them is to go deeply inside. Another one is to go out in the world. Kind of like you might in Christianity where you might have the Trappists who go inside and you have the Jesuits who go outside, right? Something like that. You don't have, we don't have that. I mean, we have that practically speaking in some countries now. But I think in the teachings of the Buddha, he didn't say, okay, here are the options. So we have these general invocations and, you know, and then also one could, we could speak of, you know, we have practices like loving kindness, you know, and it's very clear that, um, it's very clear that the practice aims at becoming universal. That those, you know, that the, this is more or less the kind of the heart or compassion practices, which move towards universality and an approach towards everyone of caring, and you know, it's also linked to the the uh, practices and teachings on compassion. You know, and I think the Mahayana bring out a little more clearly that that might imply action. You know, but even the Mahayana is sometimes simply interpreted as more something that one does in the meditations or or in an inward way. Although they're you know they're there are many different interpretations of that. But I think more to say that one could take a practice like loving kindness which, or compassion, which how one does it practically, you know, one develops loving kindness for self or, and then for various categories of others and then goes towards loving kindness for all. And this is really potentially a way to be or a way to be more and more. Well, that could imply... Uh, that could imply a way to be in the world, right? So again, I think that what we get from tradition are more or less these pointings. We don't get a well-developed uh, path. We 
we don't get something like we do find in other traditions, to my knowledge, you know, like in Hindu tradition, you know, the, the, one of the models that Gandhi used was the model of the karma yogi, you know, the action yogi, you know, and um, we don't have an explicit path like that in the teachings of the Buddha, to my knowledge. So we get more, more uh, pointings. And so, um, did you have a, uh, something, Nessie? No, I just, I want to be conscious of not talking too much, but... Well, if you do talk, you should use the mic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, I want to go back to this idea of the institutionalization yeah. of suffering, because this is certainly a concept that's coming up in healthcare yeah. um, dialogue now a lot. And I think it's an important, yeah. it's, it's a really important discussion. Um, and it's a, sh- it's a big shift, uh, you know, from the very earliest ways of looking at illness and sickness as a, a punishment from God. Yeah. And then moving through on some other um, sicknesses or illnesses being criminalized, especially in terms of like alcohol and drug addiction. And then now moving and changing this, um, this concept to where an illness is not necessarily just an individual uh, occurrence um, or based on how an individual yeah. lives their lives because we can see this in terms of obesity and heart disease in this country. Yeah. And that's very much institutionalized, the way we eat and the way people are fed. Right. Um, but the other point or the bigger point, I guess, that I sort of um, churn with a little bit is this idea of blaming the victim. Yeah. And I think that gets institutionalized. And people encounter a huge amount of suffering surrounding that when, in fact, it is a larger um, societal or cultural... Yeah, ...has yeah. a big component. Right. So, so this, I think, uh, to me... Um, one of one of the horizons of socially engaged Buddhism is to develop ways of understanding how the inner roots of suffering connect with the collective roots of suffering. And I think we're at a young stage. People like David Loy have begun to develop that. It's more, you know, I, I sometimes talk about the, the need for something like a, um, well, the equivalent of a Buddhist liberation theology. Or we, we might say another, David Loy talks about a socially engaged Buddhist theory. And I think it's really more, uh, you know, we have in, in Western, Western developments or Western social change work, we have a lot of social analysis, a lot of sociological analysis of how institutions work and so forth. And um, a lot of that work, some of that work, people try to make the connection between that and psychology. So we have a sense of how, you know, in the examples you're giving, how do ideologies and views about the body connect with food distribution systems, connect with models of gender 
and translate into certain attitudes and behaviors of individuals, right? A little complex to unpack that, but clearly something like that's happening, and it'd be helpful to really know that process really clearly in order to help change it, right? And so something like that, I think, is called for, you know? So those of you who are still in school with your vocations not yet fully determined, you may wish to go in this direction. There's a lot of, lot of work to be done. I'm not looking at anyone in particular, but there, I know there are some people <laughs> who may fit that bill. And, um, um, but it's something that I think is quite important. That's really, I think, how do we look at the world and look at institutions informed by spiritual values? Most of the, you know, most of the sociology or the social analysis comes from a different perspective. So it's tricky how to do this, you know, but I think some other traditions have been trying to do this. I think it's quite important and it doesn't have to be very sophisticated to go a long way. Liberation theology developed their social theory through comic books. Do you know that? Throughout Latin America? Yeah, that, not, not exclusively, it was also through long theological tomes, but, um, but it was also done at a popular level, often, I mean, there were sophisticated comic books, but they would, they would I've, seen, I've seen some of them from Brazil and other places, that they're quite, quite um, not so hard to understand. You don't have to have a PhD to understand uh, what they're saying. And a lot of the, you know, something like what you're talking about, the relationship between you know, where does, where does obesity come from, right? It's not so hard to understand, right? It's pretty, but someone has to connect the dots. So I think that's, um, for me, this is one of the horizons because we, we haven't done that so well. You know, people like David Lawyer are just at the beginning of doing that. So I'm very conscious that this is um, one of the horizons, one of the challenge areas for socially engaged Buddhism is to say, can I look at the world through a Buddhist lens or through a spiritually informed lens in ways that inform my understanding and my action and have a sense of how the inner and the outer go together? So, thank you. Maybe uh, one more before, um, before we go. Did you have a question? Yeah. Actually, I want to make a comment. Uh, yeah. When uh, you said about the caste system, uh, in India. Yeah. So that was one of the reasons that uh, Buddhism didn't survive there. Buddhism didn't survive there because uh, Buddhism rejected the caste system. Because the caste system yeah. was too strongly entrenched? Yes. Yeah. So that, is one, that was one of the reasons. Yeah. Another qu- question I have is yeah. that... So I want to make... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's hard, uh, it's hard to have the microphone and do one's normal hand gesture. <laughs> <laughs> The second one is that uh, when you mention about the first precept, yeah. So being non-vegetarian is uh, somewhat uh, being non-vegetarian eating yeah. meat, meat. Yeah. So is it indirectly uh, affecting the first precept uh, as you? Yes. The question of the um, was vegetarianism implied by the first precept controversial. You know, the Buddha clearly did not include that. You know, people like Ashoka, you mentioned Ashoka. Ashoka tended more in that direction, actually protected animals. This is, what, 250 before the common era in India, right? So, you know, if you look at the edicts of Ashoka, 
it's way beyond any governments that have ever existed. <laughs> you know, it didn't last that long, but it, it was, it's pretty remarkable if you actually look. They outlawed capital punishment, protected animals, and there were laws made, you know. Again, it, uh, so quite remarkable. But the, yeah, the, the Buddha, the, the uh, and anyone who knows um, some of this better than me can help help chime in, but certainly the Buddha did not interpret the um, implication of the precept as to mean that everyone should be vegetarian. But the guideline that was given for monks and nuns was that one should know that a particular food uh, was not did not come from actions taken to kill expressly for the monk or nun. So in other words, if it was done for the family and they share some of that, that's okay. And that's the system. You know, when I've stayed at monasteries in Thailand, uh, there was meat offered, you know, when I, when I stayed there. Um, there are groups of reform-minded Thai Buddhists who think that that's a problem. And they're Western Buddhists who think that, you know, one of my teachers once said, the Buddha made a bad mistake there <laughs> on that issue, you know. Uh, but so I would say it's uh, controversial. But, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't know if we're completely clear. Most retreat centers are vegetarian, but I don't know if, uh, you know, I, we're not so explicit about the reasons. Spirit Rock is just vegetarian meals. So why is that? It's been that way, you know. Actually, Buddha's time, there was food scarcity. So that was one of the reasons that... What? Scarcity. Scarcity, yeah. 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 So that was one of the reasons that uh, Buddha didn't want their monk to be... That, that it wasn't practical to be to be uh, vegetarian. Yeah. You know, and you look towards Tibet or something, it's... Um, I don't think they have... I don't think they had greenhouses at the monastery. <laughs> So, so um, was there anyone else who had a hand up? Maybe a uh, last one, and then we'll go to go towards lunch. Uh, just a quick question slash comment. Um, it, it, I really enjoy the discussion of how to get how, how we get to a socially engaged Buddhist practice, how we get to this from a philosophical perspective. I wonder if people have written about or or studied about the biological uh, action. So. There's been a lot of study of the biological effects of Buddhism or biological effects of insight and, and meditation and mindfulness. And now we have a good bit of scholar, scholarship about the biological effects of observing others' pain and the mirroring of pain yeah. in the self when, yeah. you observe, mm-hmm. when you observe pain. And so that's sort of the first arrow, in essence, gets automatically multiplied. Yeah, yeah. And then... And then that, that's, to me, it seems like there may be a way to look at yet another approach towards socially engaged Buddhism as a way of reducing one's own first arrows by, by trying to alleviate the pain, the first arrows of others. Um, yeah, no, that, that's interesting. I think, I imagine there will be, um, that, that will be a part of this as it gets more and more developed. And I think people are, Working, um, you know, a lot of people working in this level, you know, at the level of science and medicine and so forth, studies of the brain. But yeah, I think to, um, you know, um, you know, I talk with my mom about this. She's really interested in studies of the brain. She says, 
yeah, it looks like um, uh, the compassionate action is wired into the human being. Wow, that's pretty interesting, right? So, so that might be part of, I think that would be a parallel or a supportive understanding, you know, if we, if we actually say that unless we get, um, unless our natural tendencies get overridden, which they, uh, the unless is actually, I should reframe it, they always get overridden. You know, our natural compassionate tendencies get overridden because of our own development and our own pain, our own trauma, whatever. You know, but if we, if to, to be able to say on a scientific or medical basis that we have, you know, that we exist in a vast limbic field where we're tuned into the suffering of others and we're not really separate, <laughs> you know, and that we have a natural impulse to help others. Well, that, uh, that would then let us have interest in how that gets, uh, how we lose that perspective through whatever, through, through um, our own development or through conditioning or through the educational system or the social structures. How do, how do, we, yeah, how do we move away from that? You could take that to be the very natural perspective and I think it goes hand in hand you know, with so many of the Buddhist teachings are about, um, they're not about really getting something new, they're really about getting back to what in some traditions is called a natural state. You know, in, in the Theravada tradition or in Tibetan tradition or many traditions, there's just this invocation of what's our, what's our natural way of being. And I think that would go hand in hand with this brain research. And I, I was thinking of the first retreat I ever did. I was a student and I was studying a lot of the psychology of altered states of consciousness, which I was very interested in at the time. And... Um, and I did my first retreat you know, coming from that basis and was basically in a different way of being most of the time. It was a two-week retreat at Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. And I came out of it with a slogan, civilization is an altered state of consciousness. <laughs> and meaning that uh, what we, you know, the way we move around normally is altered. And what I was ex- experiencing in the retreat that was normal and natural. And civilization itself was an altered state. And I think that actually, I mean, I'm saying it a little humorously, I think there's a lot of truth to that. That, you know, it's almost like civilization or some aspects of it as like being in a trance state. It's not so hard to see, right? And that what we're doing is trying to come back to a more natural state. And in that natural state, compassion, being affected by others' pain, is normal. And yet, how many of us are normal in that sense right now? Right? That's what we have to practice, go to all these retreats just to... So that's why, again, a lot of the imagery of Buddhist practice is that we don't create something new, but we actually uncover our deeper sense of who we are. We uncover it or we, we cut through the conditioning which overlays it. A lot of the imagery is more like that. So that's, that's a great point. It really goes hand in hand. So... Yeah, so I think we would have kind of a, you know, my, my own kind of vision would be that there'd be this um, integration. It's a nice way to go to lunch, maybe. And, and remember what Nancy was saying in terms of eating a good, healthy lunch. Um, but um, that there'd be this integration of the, you know, the, the essentials of Buddhist practice with 
being able to see the world clearly, some of which we get from uh, social theories or social analyses, connecting with the best of Western depth psychology, connected with the scientific understanding of the brain and of uh, uh, our, our roots of our behavior. And what would that look like all together? You know, that'd be very interesting. I think that's, you know, that would be, uh, uh, could be the basis for beautiful culture. You know, which, so that's kind of the horizon, kind of the vision. Good. So that being said, we can uh, you know, work with that, with that vision. Let me talk a little bit about uh, leading up to lunch. And I think we'll, we'll have a, maybe a little less, is, is um, you know, a little less than an hour, is that enough for everyone? Uh, how many people need to go out? Okay, so we'll take a full hour then. Um, so I'll see where I'm. I have a few announcements to make and then we'll just see, we'll take a full, a full hour. And uh, okay, so where are my announcements? So first of all, um, we do have, do have a table over there, has copies of my own book on socially engaged Buddhism, more as a practice. Again, we'll get in the afternoon more to the sense of practice. 